interrupt your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. We're going to do something a little different here today. For this show, I'm going to play guest, and I've invited my friend Admin Edmondson, who works with my other friend Alex Epstein at the Center for Industrial Progress, to take over as host. Adam, take it away. So Don, I want to talk to you about what you call the welfare state myth. So let's start there. What is the welfare state myth? Yeah, so the welfare state myth is this basic idea that in America before the welfare state, to the extent that people even know there was a time in America before the welfare state, things were really awful. That a significant portion of the population, if not starving in the streets basically could barely get by that it was really wretched and hard for them to get forward and that once only once the welfare state was created starting with social security in 1935 did we actually get a benevolent compassionate humane society where for the first time the people at the bottom had a fighting chance and what i really the reason i call this a myth is because um you know i had grown up with this idea as much as anybody um, you know, I had heard the same stories about, you know, what was going on in the country. And it I, it didn't lead me to necessarily conclude that while the welfare state was right, I thought there were reasons to think that there were problems with it. But um, it made me at least, it, it gave me pause. And one of the things I was really surprised about then once I started researching this topic was that actually the history tells a completely different story. It tells a story which when by many measures... America was a far better place to live in before the welfare state, and the welfare state was not created fundamentally to solve real problems that were not being solved. It was being created fundamentally because there were people who wanted to reshape the nature of America and to change it from the kind of country that it was to the kind of country that they wanted it to be. So could you paint out a little more what was America like before the welfare state? Wasn't there a lot of poverty? Um, and did the welfare state help to fight that when it was implemented? So the, it certainly is true that by today's standards, the country was a lot poor. And we can talk a little bit later about how to assess whether the welfare state is what has led it to become richer or whether it's something that has actually hobbled it from becoming richer. But the basic thing to keep in mind about the country before the creation of the welfare state was that America was a different kind of country. It was a new kind of country. It was the first country created as the product not of chance and tradition or conquest, but of ideas. And specifically, these were the ideas of the Enlightenment um, coming down to us through the Founding Fathers. And if you wanted to give one word to the essence of what they were creating, it was an individualist society. It was a society in which the individual came first. The government was not something that trumped him. It wasn't something above him to which he owed a duty and allegiance. It was the individual comes first. He has a right to make the most of his life. And that individuals, when they come together to form society, create a government as a tool, a tool to serve them as individuals and to serve them in one specific respect, to be the guardian of their rights, to say that, what you have a right to do as an individual to support and enjoy your life, 
nobody else can interfere with. And if people do try to interfere with it, if somebody tries to exercise coercion against you to violate your rights, the government's going to step in and be your agent of self-defense. So this gave rise and was part of a culture of individualism. And part of what that means is that it was a real self-reliant society, that people viewed it, their life as their responsibility, and freedom was there to give them the largest possible capacity in order to make the most of their life. They viewed other people not as a means to their ends, not as responsible for helping them achieve wealth or success or a job or anything else, but as people that they could cooperate with to achieve their shared interests and their mutual ends. And if they couldn't reach a basis for mutual cooperation, then they were free to go their other way, their own way. Uh, and this read, led to one of the most benevolent societies in history and to some of the greatest amounts of cooperation that you saw, social cooperation. So one of the ways that individualism is often mocked by its opponents, including people like President Obama, is to call it an on-your-own society. Well, with the government's not there to give you welfare, you're on your own. And now it's true, you are fundamentally on your own in the sense that nobody is forced to be your servant or to bail you out or to save you from your own mistakes. But it's certainly not on your own in the sense that each man goes and lives on an island or moves into the middle of the woods. Um, Tocqueville, when he visits during the 1830s, one of the things he observes about individualist America is the scale of social cooperation. People form associations of all sorts. And um, I'll name just one. Well, I'll name two. So one is the business relationship. Obviously, these have existed elsewhere, but these really flourish here because people can find mutually beneficial ways to work together so that they can all profit. But the, the more interesting one, or another interesting one from the perspective of the welfare state, were called mutual aid societies. And these were voluntary organizations in which we paid, if we wanted to, membership dues to become a part of it. And then one of the things that resulted from that was that we would be covered as a form of insurance in cases, it depended on the charter of a given aid society, but it could cover unemployment, it could cover sickness benefits, uh, it could cover injury and accident. All the Many of the things that we're told we need a welfare state to insure us against, um, these things were be, being provided for people voluntarily through these voluntary cooperative associations that resulted from the self-reliant society, the individualist society, the American society. Now, as far as poverty goes, look, Poverty is our natural condition. It's what we're born into um, by nature. If you look at history, history is a history of human beings being poor. And indeed, if you look up until about 1800, every society lived on rough, people lived on roughly a dollar to two dollars per day, if they were lucky enough to live at all. It's only with the advent of capitalism and the endless progressive prosperity that it makes possible that you really get a rise out of poverty. And so this rise really starts roughly around 1800. And it's on an upward trend that continues uh, through the entire 1800s and into the 1900s. Now, you don't get a welfare state until, 18, until 1935, really, by any measure. And it really doesn't become significant until arguably the 1960s. So just by that standard alone, the idea that the welfare state is responsible for prosperity is crazy. Um, but as we can talk about later, and as we've talked about in other podcasts, the truth is actually the opposite. The welfare state hampers economic growth that lifts people out of poverty.
So you mentioned mutual aid societies, but uh, what would people do in this America when they couldn't find work? What if they couldn't pay into the mutual aid society? Um, yeah, so the I mentioned the mutual aid societies, but that was far from the only thing that people did. Look, you have to remember that this was a country in which everybody knows from day one, nobody's there to bail you out. Nobody's forced to bail you out. Now, under that kind of situation, are you likely to make provisions for the future and plans for the future? You bet you are. And that's what most people did. And the list is really endless, but just to give a flavor to the kinds of things that would go on. First of all, people saved, and as a proportion of their income, they saved a lot more than today. I mean, indeed, today our savings rate is zero to negative. Um, but there was a lot of savings that went on. Uh, a lot of one way that they would save is through buying insurance of various sorts. Um, there was a some things were more informal. Where, for instance, buying one of the virtues of buying a house in those days was that you could rent out rooms to boarders, and that would help you if you know a family member wasn't earning money for a time, and that was very often something that people did. Most help in those days for people who really needed help. And again, this is a very small portion of the population at any given time, um, is they turn to informal networks of help, friends, families, neighbors, work, any organizations they belong to. Um, and, and this was the main way in which people helped each other. And, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't just your close friends. You would often, um, you know, hey, I lost my job this week. I should be able to pick up some work next week. Joe the butcher, can you give me an extra few days to pay my grocery bill? And it was very often that people would have a tab at their local grocer or their local butcher or so on. Um, and then finally there was, although people resisted it and viewed it as a very negative thing to have to take, there was abundant private charity. As a proportion of GDP um, during most of the 19th century, there was more spending on private charity than there is even today. Um, and the you could go to any if you were in any city there'd be a book 100 pages long filled with all sorts of private philanthropic efforts um there was really an incredible outpouring of charity and it was charity that operated i think much more effectively at achieving its goals than did a government welfare program because this was people spending their own money they spent it very carefully they made sharp distinctions between what they thought of as the unwilling and the unable the unable, say an orphan, was almost certain to receive aid, no questions asked. Whereas the unwilling, which might be a person who's lazy or could be a person who's a drunk or something like that, um, now they often would receive aid too, Was, uh, but they would be required to abide by very strict rules, um, such as no drinking or no um, gambling or so on, uh, be made to work if they were at all able to work, um, but... The, the fact is that there were not people starving in the streets. What there were is people receiving help privately, voluntarily, which means without anyone's sacrifice, that nobody had to be forced to give what they didn't value giving. So if, if you cared about poor people in that country, you could go and help them with your money. But if I didn't care about them, if I actually wanted to say send my kids to school or build a business for myself and I valued that more than helping a poor person, that was my inalienable right to do. And so morally, this was far superior to what the welfare state does. So one of the central uh, institutions of the welfare state is Social Security. 
and that's really the first welfare program. Uh, what did people do about retirement before Social Security? Well, you know, it's interesting. We take it for granted that the ideal is to spend a significant portion of your life not doing anything. And that was definitely not the view then. Retirement, as we think of it, was not a real concept. Um, some people worked just because they had to. But uh, if you actually look at what was going on at the time, the idea that one should retire was a real tough sell. And it really it, it took several decades for people to even start to get the idea of, oh, I, I should want to not work. Um, people then found a real meaning, uh, a real meaning and purpose and fulfillment in their work, and they would often continue as long as they could. Um, now, not everybody could, and some people didn't want to. And there were basically three main ways that they um, provided for themselves uh, and dealt with that reality at the time. One, again, was savings. Now, to be, to be sure, very few people could afford to just not work for a long time and count on their savings, but that played a, a, an important role. The second war, private pensions. Um, and these, were, these had really just started to evolve in the decades leading up to Social Security, and so they were a small but growing part of the population. <clears throat> um, and then finally... It, there was relying on friends, and, uh, but mainly family. And it was very common at the time that um, uh, a family would invite its parents in to live with, it, uh, live with them um, as they got older. And, you know, grandma would help around the house and help raise the kids and so on. Or if the parents didn't want to be bothered with that, maybe they'll just help financially support them. Um, but you would very often get generations supporting each other. And it's funny, if you look at the arguments made for things like Social Security and later Medicare, often one of the arguments is to relieve children of the responsibility for taking care of their parents. But, of course, nobody, none of these programs relieve anybody of that responsibility. Um, we're still forced to pay the taxes to do it, but instead of being able to decide how much we want to and can afford to help mom and dad, and besides getting the joy of mom and dad being thankful for the help, we get a situation in which the government decides how much it's going to take, and then it goes to support other people's parents. And, I mean, I always liken it to, you know, you're going about your day, and the government shows up with a van and pushes somebody's grandma out in your lawn and says, here, you watch her for a few months. So it's, it's so self-evident to so many people today that we need a welfare state, and to say that we don't for most people would just be totally shocking something they look at you like you're from Mars uh, so why why was there no welfare state before 1935 and and why is it so shocking to us today that that we would say that you shouldn't have one yeah it's an it's an interesting point one of the things that was very striking to me is that um, you, you know if you read Marxist history books ones that even people on the left think are crazy they always argue that you know history is a process of the people at the bottom making demands and fighting their way to better, you know, freedoms and so on. But that's actually, it's a bunch of nonsense. Inevitably, these things from come from the top down, starting with intellectuals. And that is certainly what happened with the American welfare state. Americans not only weren't calling for a welfare state, they knew that these things existed. It was really, the welfare state got its beginning uh, in its modern form in the 1880s um, uh, in Germany under Bismarck. And Americans knew about these things. I mean, it was sweeping Europe, but they resisted. And why did they resist? Again, it was the American sense of individualism. 
they had a pride in their ability to support their own life, and they had a firm belief that the government's job was to leave each individual free to make the most of his own life. They rejected the idea that my life is a claim on your paycheck. And so um, the, the, all, what happened was there were people who disagreed with that view, and they, in effect, held the European or German ideal. And these were predominantly American intellectuals um, influenced by socialism, but largely not socialists. Uh, they called themselves early on the progressives. And progress didn't mean they wanted economic progress. They thought it was necessary to progress behind or uh, uh, beyond the principles of the founding fathers. We need to get away from this limited view of government and recognize that we needed a powerful government that had the ability to do what was in the, quote, public interest. And one of the things they regarded as very much in the public interest was for those with less to have more. That is to redistribute wealth from um, those who had it to those who allegedly needed it. And so they started pushing for this in the 1880s and even in part before. Um, and they really got nowhere. They got nowhere for a long time. And it wasn't until the 1930s that you actually saw any significant success on their part at getting the welfare state through. Yeah, that, that brings up Social Security. How did that get passed? And, and how did we go from this period where you described most Americans as resisting the welfare state to enough of them embracing it that it could be passed? So you see a number of things happening um, between 1880, let's say, and 1935. So one thing that happens is just the passage of time. There's been 50 years now, roughly, in which the progressives and, and their progeny, who are, I mean, they, by this time, they they're, um, control most of the colleges. It's the message that people have been hearing over and over again, um, that you are your brother's keeper morally, and therefore politically, we should be doing a better job of keeping our brother. So there's just been... Uh, beaten into people's heads for decades now this idea that a um, welfare state is moral um the the second thing that i think is going on is that there is of course during the from 1929 and through the 1930s the great depression uh and the we can talk a little bit about the great depression if you want but one of the things that the depression does is the um private so free markets led to prosperity and as we talked about free people found really innovative ways to deal with economic threats and tough times um, but one of the things that happened during the great depression was that that so-called safety net the 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 mutual aid societies and private charities the the depression was so deep and went on for so long that the resources were dried up and what happened was that the um the welfare status and the progressives started uh, saying, look, see, we've seen that free markets really can't work, that uh, we need a welfare state because the resources of the private sphere aren't enough. Now, parenthetically, and we can come back to this, the Great Depression showed no such thing because it was A, created by government intervention, not capitalism, and B, it was prolonged precisely because of all sorts of government intervention into the economy. So, but what you get with the Great Depression then uh, is the fact that people are alarmed. The resources of private charity aren't enough to help them, and so they're really open to new solutions. And third, and I think this is very important, 
the the welfare status changed the way they talk about what they're doing. It used to be that they said, look, individual rights is outmoded. We need to have a government that can do whatever that regards us in the public interest. Throw out property rights, throw out individual rights. Let's get this powerful, expansive government. And what you get with FDR and the New Dealers, notice, by the way, they did away with the term progressive because what they what they realized and what FDR realized was that, you know, in this country, contrasting yourself with the founding fathers was not a really bright idea. Americans revered the founding fathers and the founding principles. So what he did is he said, look, we are not violating rights. We're not throwing out rights. We're expanding rights. So the founders talked about right to life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. We're just going to add some extra rights, the right to a job, the right to a home, the right to health care, the right to a minimum standard of living, and so on. And, and so Social Security, for instance, was not positioned as we're creating a welfare state. It wasn't we're going to take money from some people and hand it to others. It was called a social insurance program in which we all pay and we all benefit from. Now, again, this was nonsense, and you know we uh, we definitely talk about it on this podcast. The way in which Social Security is indeed a welfare program, we can talk about it a little bit more. But you see that it was critical that it be portrayed as people earning their own benefits, not as redistribution, not as the dole, because Americans still had too much self-esteem. And even in the Great Depression, you know, there was a very famous saying that was commonly heard that said, I'd rather be dead in a ditch than on the dole. And people meant it because it was, I want to support my own life because that is where my self-esteem, pride, and dignity come from. Well, could you say a little bit more about this point? Because a lot of people might push back and say social security isn't welfare it's social insurance that i paid for i've been paying for it uh since i've been working and i earned my benefits so do you want to take them away um well we'll talk more and we have talked more in uh, other podcasts but let me say a word about this so um the, the the basic issue here is that the people who wanted who were driving this creation, they wanted a welfare state. This is part of the historical record. Um, and they and social insurance was a way of doing that, that uh, instead of giving people income on the basis of their need, it was, we'll take from everybody and give to everybody in order to keep them from getting in need. But it was still the justification was the government can take all your money because this is what's going to help the people in need. We just don't know who those people are, so we're going to help them beforehand. Um, so it, it, there's never really been a distinction in that sense. The, the other aspect that's important to keep in mind is that there is no, the idea that I'm paying towards something, um, the money that you pay as a, through your payroll taxes under social security, that is not saved, invested or anything like that by the government and then returned to you as an earned benefit. All that happens is the money's taken from you and it's given to current retirees. Now, you may say, look, the government, you know, uh, made it impossible for me to save and plan for my retirement. So it'd be really horrific for it not to help me out once I hit retirement. But you can't call that earned. That is, an injustice was committed against you, but you can't earn the right to bilk the next generation out of its income. Because remember, every dollar that you would receive in Social Security is coming out of the pockets of current workers, out of your children and grandchildren. 
Um, and so we can sympathize with people who've been put in a situation where they don't have enough savings uh, or, and enough economic resources to retire. Um, but there's no way to treat the paycheck they get as earned. It, it, you can't earn the right to redistribute wealth from others into your own pocket. But if you look at the big picture today, didn't Social Security make America better? Didn't it lower poverty among the elderly? And doesn't it continue to be one of the government's most popular programs? Well, it's certainly one of the most popular. Um, but to take the, the, the poverty issue, this is, this is interesting. How do they measure that? <clears throat> certainly poverty among the elderly has gone down. But on the other hand, everybody's prosperity more or less has uh, increased um, in the years since Social Security has been passed as our economic growth has continued. So to attribute that to Social Security, I'd like to see exactly what the evidence is. You'll often see articles or so-called studies that say, look, if we took away Social Security from old people, look how poor they'd be. But they never include the fact of how much money, how much more money would they have if they had been free to keep their money during their working years. But even set that aside, let's say it's true that um, the poverty rate has declined in significant part because of Social Security. What does that prove? Well, it proves something not too interesting, which is if I take a lot of money out of your pocket, Adam, and I put it in my pocket, I made myself richer. That's true, but it's pretty trivial, right? Certainly morally, it doesn't have much standing because the fact is I made you poor. And the more important fact is I made you poor by taking wealth that you rightfully earned and possessed. I made your life worse off to make myself better off. And that's really the basic moral distinction between the welfare state and a, and a free market. In a free market, you get better off not at other people's expense, but by creating more value. In a welfare state, you get better off by taking more value from others that you don't have any right to. Well, to switch gears a little bit, could you tell me what the Great Society was? So, when Social Security was passed, the, the people who passed it were under no illusions that they had achieved all their life's goals. Their goal is to create a massive welfare state and... Um, as part of it, they wanted to see even more distribution. Look, um, the the when they created Social Security, one of the things they wanted to do is have a government nationalize or socialize health care. And the only reason they didn't do it is not because they had any qualms about it, but because FDR and others thought it was not politically feasible, which at that time it certainly was not. But if, as soon as Social Security is passed, you see a movement to start socializing medicine, um, but that doesn't go too well. Uh, Truman tries it and gets basically knocked on his behind. It doesn't stand a chance. Um, Americans think, I don't want the government in charge of my health care decisions. It is, and as far as a you know welfare state proper, one that's redistributing wealth openly in the name of aiding those uh, who are poor and need, that's minuscule at this point. But what happens is by the 1960s, the welfare status have basically beaten down people enough and people have gotten comfortable enough with wealth redistribution thanks to Social Security uh, in significant part that um, you, you start getting people think, all right, we really should do something about poverty. We really should do something about some people uh, are not getting the health care they need. 
Now, even at that time, there's still a lot of resistance in the realm of healthcare. So the welfare state has asked themselves, who are the most sympathetic people that we could give health care to? So if we can't give it to everybody, maybe we can just give it to the elderly and maybe we can just say that it's not welfare. It's like social security. It's a social insurance program giving out earned benefits. Well, the polling is great and people really respond to this. Um, and what you get then in the 1960s is you get the um, Great Society, which um, part of it is a so-called war on poverty, and there you get a whole bunch of government housing programs, expansion of what we traditionally call welfare, giving somebody a handout because they, you know, um, their income comes below a certain threshold. And then you get Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare being the um, health insurance for the elderly and Medicaid being health insurance for uh, a means-tested program to help out the poor. And this is really an explosion in the size of the welfare state. That um, the, 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 it, It's only by this time that the welfare state now takes on the kind of epic proportions and significance in the government's budget that we see today. Um, th there's still a lot of growth to come, but it fundamentally is shaped by those decisions in the 1960s. So we've been shaped by what went on in the 1960s, but since then a lot has happened. Um, many people say that we actually gutted the welfare state under Reagan and under Bush. Um, what do you say to that? Uh, I say look at history. Look at the facts. The, the simple fact is that welfare spending did slow under Reagan. But what that means is that the increase slowed. It still increased. Social Security got bigger. All these program, programs got bigger. Yet they got bigger at a slower rate than under previous presidents. Bush is a different case altogether. Um, he actually expanded the welfare state at faster uh, than any president since Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society. And, and above all, um, through the prescription drug benefit expansion of Medicare. And this wasn't an accident. Bush believed in the welfare state. You know, he ran initially in 2000 on the banner of um, what he called compassionate conservatism. Now, to add a modifier like compassionate to something means that, well, it's usually something that's not compassionate, right? What was not compassionate about it? Well, clearly it's the fact that, that there was this reticence towards the welfare state. And Bush's compassion, so-called, consisted of the fact that he was not against the welfare state. He viewed it as a fundamentally good thing. And indeed, um, I think there's a much stronger case that Clinton was better on the welfare state, more free market oriented than Bush ever was. Uh, and so you, you, the idea that the welfare state was gutted during this period is completely ridiculous. It grew, it grew at a very rapid rate, um, and morally became more entrenched. So I think the, we've really seen a consistent expansion at varying rates um, since the creation of Social Security. We've never seen any significant shrinkage. Uh, the closest you get to any kind of that is welfare reform under Bill Clinton. But that basically doesn't do anything with the size of welfare. It more just changes the incentives to try to get people to work more. Um, and to that extent, was modestly successful. But there's never been a, a, any uh, significant um, or consistent cutting of the welfare state. It has always grown because once you lay down the principle that a person's need, his sheer need, not that he did anything productive, entitles him to other people's wealth, well, then you get a bunch of people pushing more and more to say, I have a need or you didn't cover my need enough. 
and you see a relentless trend towards expanding the state. And of course, under Obama, um, that has happened on a grand scale above all with Obamacare, which is just the continuation of the great society and the New Deal. You mentioned that uh, Republicans, Reagan and Bush, didn't do anything really significantly to decrease the welfare state and in some cases expanded it. And you mentioned that Clinton uh, was in some ways better. Clinton was a Democrat, and I know that he got some flack for his uh, impact on the welfare state. It's conventional knowledge that the Democrats are for the welfare state and the Republicans are a bunch of rabid anti-welfare uh, uh, advocates. Is there actually a party that, that has the right view on this, or do you think that, that anybody's saying the right things today? Uh, no, I think that there's definitely, there, there is some difference between the parties um, on the welfare state issue. The, there's more of a willingness to acknowledge problems, uh, and, and certainly fiscal problems, with the welfare state on the part of many Republicans. Um, if you're going to give an oversimplification, I'd say that most, although not by no means all, of the rabid expansionists are Democrats. And what you have on the right are primarily appeasers, but very few opponents and um, very, very, very few principled opponents of the welfare state. Usually what they say is, well, we want a welfare state, but it should just be a safety net. Um, it should apply to very few people and so on. So they, they concede that clearly the poor have a right to other people's money or that y your need entitles you to other people's money. We're just going to quibble over how exactly to dispense that. Um, so in that sense, no, I don't think there's anybody who has a real f a view I would fully agree with on this issue. Certainly not a party. I think some people are very good in this issue. Some people are mixed. Um, I would say that, that you have to look at two aspects, though, at least two aspects. Or actually three, sorry. One is people who are honest about the um, actual state of today's welfare state, including its problems. And um, there's a significant number of people, particularly on the right, although not only on the right, who are honest about many of these uh, um, economic problems. Indeed, Clinton was very um, eloquent in naming the real fiscal problems with Social Security, say, uh, acknowledging that there was no real trust fund in any economic sense, that something had to be done to rein it in, or that it would self-destruct. There are, on the other hand, particularly among the Democrats, again, what, who I call the debt deniers. And these are people like Elizabeth Warren who cook up all sides, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who cook up all kinds of crazy arguments um, to basically deny that there is a problem and indeed call for expanding the welfare state. It, I mean, part of what Obamacare was, was the argument that we're going to save the welfare state by lowering health care costs. How? By expanding the welfare state. So there are those debt deniers. Um, the, the second level uh, are people who are willing to acknowledge serious moral questions about the welfare state. Um, now, I think the, the moral problems with wealth redistribution are, are inherent in wealth redistribution. Once you say that one person's need entitles him to another person's wealth, you're really saying in the end that some people are servants of others. Some people, have, some people need to be forced to serve others. Um, and I think that there's no moral justification for that. Nevertheless, there are people who make good points about 
um, some of the problems with the welfare state. Just to name one, although there are many people here, uh, I think Charles Murray um, has done good work in showing how the welfare state punishes prosperity, encourages crime, encourages irrational decisions regarding starting a family and marriage and having children. Um, and then third, there's you can look at people's solutions. And, uh, you know, again, we have people every, from the debt deniers who say, yeah, let's expand Social Security. That'll solve our problems. Um, to people who say, well, we need to keep the same goal, which is force people to save for retirement. Um, but we need to do it in a less stupid way. And so a lot of these people will advocate so-called individual accounts where the government says you have to save, but it's an account that you own. It actually gets invested in the real productive economy and not just funneled into the hands of current recipients and so on. Uh, and then there's people like me, and we are in, the I think, the most absolute minority who think what you actually need to do is get rid of the welfare state altogether. Now, not tomorrow, but over time, your goal needs to be to completely eliminate it and eliminate it and go to the, the the view of government, the individualist view of government advocated by the founding fathers. So if we look at what's going on today and we look at the view of, of America as laid out by the founding fathers and we look at all the history that you've described in between from 1935 to the 1960s, What's the big takeaway from this history? What do we do if we want to roll this back? So I would say um, that the first takeaway is to recognize that the welfare state is a foreign element in the American system. Is It is whether or not you think it's good or bad. Let's leave that open for a minute. What do you think it's good or bad? I think you have to acknowledge that this is a radically different system than the Founding Fathers. Uh, James Madison wrote an amazing essay called Property, in which he talks about the way in which property rights are not this one delimited right that yeah, the way the Supreme Court treats them now is, yeah, they're kind of second-class citizens. No, property was inherent in the view of the individual having rights, because if you don't have the right to property, you have no rights in the end. Because uh, as Ayn Rand points out, every kind of action that you would actually take in the world to affect your life, liberty, and ha pursuit of happiness require property. They require property in order to be able to act independently. So um, the idea that you could throw out the right to property and say, no, a person's need, their sheer need overrides that, you're dealing with a radically different orientation. You're dealing with one that puts society above the individual which morally or philosophically is the ideal of collectivism. It says that we're servants of the group. Um, and they might give us some freedom as individuals and so on, but it's, it's as license, it's as permission, not as right. You're not sovereign. You don't have the right to do everything within your power, every moment of your day, with every dollar that you earn to make the most of your own life. That's the Founding Fathers' vision, and that is radically different from the welfare state. The second is that the fact that there are problems, it doesn't follow automatically that the solution is going to be government intervention. The fact that there's problems in a free market, it leaves open, well, do we solve them within the sphere of our freedom and our rights? Or do we, quote, solve them um, by just destroying the idea of a government limited to protecting rights? So it is a problem in a free market how to deal with unemployment. 
there is a problem to solve, how to deal with old age and the difficulties that come with trying to work when you're older. Uh, there are problems um, with uh, losing your job. There's problems with all of these. There, there can be many problems in this regard. But people before the welfare state was created in America took it as an absolute that a problem doesn't entitle you to solve it at the expense of other people's rights. And so what they did is they found new and innovative and better and better ways to deal with those problems. Voluntary, private solutions. And I think that's really important to remember because there's no question. There's challenges in, in real life. There's challenges in a free society. I'm definitely not selling nirvana, um, uh, but I am selling a moral ideal. And what capitalism is, is it's an ideal in that it allows people to solve those problems while treating others um, as other sovereign beings, not as a means to your end. Finally, I would say that what we see if we look at the whole history of the welfare state is the complete hopelessness of trying to appease the welfare status. That once you concede that a person's need is an entitlement, whether you say, well, it should just be limited to a safety net or whether it should just apply to the elderly or only 10% tax rates or something, once you concede the framework of the welfare status that say people are basically helpless and that they have a right to be supported by the collective, um, the rest is just a matter of time. And in fact, if you look at the arguments that take place today over the welfare state, it's almost indistinguishable from the same approach that the left and the right have taken throughout the history of this. Um, I'll just name one example. When the Democrats came out for Social Security, the um, presidential candidate, I believe this is in 1936, uh, his response was to say, look, of course we need to have an old age welfare program. Um, of course we need social justice. I'm all for those things, but you guys did it in a really expensive bureaucratic way. What we should do is have a guaranteed income for all for people who are uh, in need, and then um, uh, I forget the exact details of it, but basically it was the idea of what we need is really just a real safety net and one that's organized more intelligently than Social Security. Well, those are exactly the same arguments that you would hear during the 1960s as we debated uh, the Great Society, and indeed it's the same arguments that we heard during Obamacare, which the right came out and said, well, clearly we have to provide people with pre-existing conditions. We have to guarantee them health care. Certainly we should look for ways to give universal health care, um, but we should do it in a much more intelligent way than this stupid, bloated, you know, thousand-page bill, da 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 um, The fact is you can't win that way. You have to turn the tables on the welfare status and challenge them at the moral root. And I think that's one of the lessons that clearly comes out of the history of the welfare state. You mentioned that the progressives didn't get very far by by saying essentially that what we need to do is progress from the founding fathers. And so they changed a lot of the way that we talked about these things as a matter of expanding rights, creating new rights. You've mentioned a little bit since then that the founders recognized a right to property as an essential element to exercising any other right. 
But to play devil's advocate, and this is something that I think many people get confused about, say that you are a billionaire and there are several people around you who don't have any property and therefore, on that same argument, can't exercise any of their other rights. And if I take some money from you and give it to them, I am not stopping you from exercising all of your other rights to the extent that you have more money than you can use. How do we answer that? Are his rights being violated and are they having their rights protected by that action? Or, or is that vice versa, as I think you've, um, you've been saying? So, yeah, I mean, you have to remember that um, when I say that rights or freedom are important or critical or indispensable for success, they're not a guarantee of success. Uh, any more than having a full tank of gas in your car is a guarantee that your car is going to run. So there, you need to be free in order to be able to really achieve everything possible to you in life. Um, but there can be, but there can be such a thing as you're free and you, you haven't been that successful, and maybe you're, you know, you can't buy uh, the kind of like quality of food that you'd like and the car that you want. And you're really struggling, and other people are succeeding a lot. But I don't regard other people as a means to your ends. I don't regard myself as a means to anybody else's ends. And so if I'm successful and I haven't taken my wealth from anybody, I've earned it through my own achievement, then no, the fact that I have a million dollars does not entitle somebody with $10,000 to one single one of my dollars. Now, I might help them if they ask and don't demand it as a right and if it's no sacrifice to me, um, but that's not a precondition for my freedom. It's not a precondition for respecting me as a sovereign being. Um, but there's a real unrealistic way in which the question is set up that I would challenge and I think is illegitimate. That it is, it, it, the, the premise is, well, we have a situation in which people are free and yet only one person has a lot and everybody else has nothing um, or basically nothing. The, the fact is that freedom leads to rising prosperity for everybody uh, who's willing and able to work, which is the vast majority of people. It was during the pre-welfare state age that America became called the land of opportunity. The opportunity did not come from any guarantee of wealth. It came from the fact that nobody could take your wealth or interfere with your freedom to try to make something of your life. And you would, it was not uncommon for people to come here with nothing and rise to a, a, a modest success or sometimes a great success. One of my greatest heroes in business was Andrew Carnegie. And Carnegie arrived here when he was 12 years old. His family was poor. Um, he, was, he had, I think, only a third grade education. And he started in a loom factory uh, for... I believe the sum was $1.25, not a day, but a week. And yet it was the freedom to start there, to start small um, and not have anybody interfere with him that enabled him to ultimately rise into somebody who was successful and ultimately one of the most successful people in American history. So is a hungry man free and able to exercise his rights? You bet he is. You bet he is. Uh, I, I mean, the Carnegie's proof of that, Ayn Rand, I work at the Ayn Rand Institute, she came here and at various times was struggling to keep her head above water. But it was the freedom to try to make something of her life that enabled her to do it, not 
her ability to reach in other people's pockets and not Carnegie's ability to reach in other people's pockets. They didn't do it and we don't have to either. Don, thank you for being on the Debt Dialogues. Thank you for having me as a guest host. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, being the guest host. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.